Welcome to the Growth Cap Podcast, where we chat with CEOs, investors, and other key industry leaders to uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. In this episode, we chat with Aaron Klein, the co-founder and CEO of Riskalyze. Riskalyze invented the risk number, which enables financial advisors to use data to construct portfolios most suitable for their clients' risk profile. Advisors, broker-dealers, RIAs, and asset managers use the Riskalyze platform to create alignment between clients and portfolios, leverage sophisticated analytics to increase the quality of their advice, automate trading and client account management, and access world-class models and research. We discuss why today's financial advisors often lack the necessary tools to adequately serve their clients, the methodology behind the Riskalyze platform, and Aaron's key tenets to scaling his company, among many other topics. We hope you enjoy the show. So Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a delight to chat with you today. Maybe what we could do to kick off is, for the benefit of our audience, hear a little bit about yourself, your background, and then we'll hop right into Riskalyze. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. It is My career has kind of been at the intersection of finance and technology, but I actually started working at the age of 12 in the afternoons after school for my dad. He knew nothing about child labor laws or minimum wage laws, but that worked out fine. It worked out okay, and I learned a lot from that experience. I actually helped to sell his company to a larger competitor when I was like 22 years old, and that was a fascinating experience. And I ended up doing a number of different things kind of in and about the internet in that time frame. some things around a payments business, some things around SaaS software, and kind of moderately successful. One of them was not successful, and, and then ended up running product for a division of an options brokerage firm and leading technology teams to kind of build tools for options traders. And I remember during that period of time talking to a buddy of mine who's a financial advisor, And I said, it is crazy how the average individual thinks about the concept of risk. And he said, if you think that's crazy, you should see how many of us financial advisors think about it. We just have not really had the tools in our profession to understand who clients are and really match that up with the amount of risk that is in their portfolios. So anyway, we kind of double clicked on that idea and realized that there was just so much reliance in the profession on qualitative terms like conservative, moderate, and aggressive. And, you know, you can just imagine, like, if contractors and architects talk to each other that way, they'd say, well, remember, he wants a conserv- you know, moderately conservative hallway leading to his moderately aggressive conference room, and buildings would not come together. So we really felt like we needed to put the feet and inches into this for financial advisors, and that's how the risk number was born. And, and we started Riskalyze in 2011. It's been an amazing 10 years of building this company, and today we serve tens of thousands of financial advisors all across the United States. And we've grown from our beginnings with helping advisors understand risk to a full-blown portfolio analytics platform, as well as a trading automation platform that today manages over $20 billion in assets and has, has doubled in the last year. So it's been a great, great ride. And we're really excited about the growth and the potential that exists in the business ahead. Yeah, this, this is going to date me a little bit. In the 90s, when I did my first internship in finance. It was with Dean Witter Reynolds. And I remember learning 
about how folks retiring should split their portfolio between fixed income and equities based uh-huh. on their age. It was like the inverse of their their <laughs> age. And I just right. thought, I was like, really? Is that all there is to it? And it yeah. kept talking about that. And I was just like, this seems kind of ridiculous. I'm new to finance, but that seems kind of ridiculous. Well, your, instinct, so, your instinct was right because it is ridiculous. That is an old wives' tale, invest your age in bonds. And what it ignores is the fact that humans are individuals who have their own set of biases and their own set of, so it might be a rough approximation of how much risk somebody typically needs in order to reach their goals. It's a very rough approximation. And what it forgets is that humans have this horrible propensity to sabotage their own investing. When markets go down, we feel nervous and we want to take action to protect ourselves. And our instinct is to sell. And that's at the worst time possible, right? And then when markets are up, we're feeling excited and optimistic. And that's where we want to put more risk on. And if you continually sell low and buy high, uh, you will assuredly be broke within 30 to 40 years. So it, it's it's a cycle that we have to break. And that's really what Riskalyze is all about, uh, helping financial advisors create a framework to help their clients understand and react to risk appropriately. Because when you do that, you can transform a fearful investor who makes bad decisions into a fearless investor who really makes great decisions. And ultimately, it's it's a series of great short-term decisions that amazing financial advisors use to actually create those great long-term financial outcomes. Now, do you think there's enough folks out there, everyday folks who are savvy enough and interested enough to want to buy Riskalyze directly? Or is that available? To consumers? Yes. No, not today. I mean, we actually are just experimenting with this right now. We are very focused on the financial advisor. And so we're experimenting with a bit of a research project to say, what happens if, like, can we get people interested in the risk number and effectively, like, connect them into advisors? or connect Riskalyze back into the advisors they already have. And so uh, we're running this experiment with risknumber.com to kind of deliver the core risk assessment capability kind of to consumers directly. But no, we've really focused in terms of growing the business on working with financial advisors. And, And I think at the end of the day, the big opportunity that we have is to continually help financial advisors democratize access to advice and really help them tear down the barriers to great advice because I am just very bullish on the human financial advisor. I don't think that you can productize or roboize uh, human empathy and coaching. And at the end of the day, this is about helping people who are fearful in a moment to have the confidence to reject their impulses and say, I'm going to choose to kind of act for the long term and keep my proposal on the right track. And our view is, If the financial advisor has built up enough credibility by helping the client understand how much risk is right for them and keeping them invested for the long term, when we get to those crazy 5% probability events in the markets like 2008, like the global pandemic crash, that's how those clients can have the confidence to go, you're right to my advisor and say, you're right. The people who do the best are the ones who don't sell at the bottom of a 5% probability event. The people who do the best are the ones who hang on and go, I made a good plan, I should stick with it. How does the engine work? The skeptic would say, okay, here's my number, but what that really equates to is you're going to weight me, like broadly speaking, to this percentage in, in fixed income. How we do you- had to build a lot deeper than that. So first of all, on the risk assessment side of the coin, 
We started with an academic framework that a guy named Dr. Daniel Kahneman invented called prospect theory. He won the Nobel Prize for Economics for prospect theory in 2002, and he wrote about it in the New York Times bestseller, Thinking Fast and Slow. So there are people who have said, oh my gosh, like, have you read that chapter, that book? He's like, he's writing about you. And I'm like, no, we can't take credit for that. Like prospect theory is something that Kahneman became famous for. But we built a bunch of technology on top of that because Kahneman stopped with kind of nominal dollar amounts, right? And one of the things that we built on top of Prospect Theory was the idea that we're going to, first of all, capture what your investable amount is. And then we built some tech that effectively understands how to move up and down your personal financial spectrum and understand when you prefer risk and when you prefer certainty. And ultimately, like academics have looked at that and said, got it. Like we've been working with monetary utility theory in the lab for 25 years but somebody finally figured out how to make it understandable and relevant to the average consumer, right? And so if you flip the coin, we then made a very fateful decision for our company to build our risk model on at the individual securities level instead of the asset class level like everybody else does. So when you build at the asset class level, your assumption is, well, all these stocks are going to basically act like your typical average large cap stock. And all of these bonds are going to act like your typical bond over here and all of the different asset classes that exist there. Our belief was 2008 had happened. One of the things we learned in 2008 was that when markets are under pressure, correlations go to one. Everything kind of acts in concert. So the classic belief that asset classes were good enough was just not good enough when it really counted. And then we saw that happen again in 2020 with the pandemic crash, right? Correlations go to one when markets are under stress. So it turned out to be a fantastically great decision that created a very sustainable competitive advantage for us to build at the individual securities level. So to put it directly, like we don't just allocate percentages of bonds or something like that. We're actually looking at each individual security an advisor or a client has in their portfolio and looking at the track records of those securities, looking at return and volatility, and then looking at the cross-correlation analysis. In theory, and I don't want to be clear, this is theory, but you could take a risk 95 stock and you could take a risk 99 crypto coin. And if they're inversely correlated to each other, they could together in a 50-50 allocation be a risk 63 portfolio. Right. Mm -hmm. Because so you've got to take correlation into effect. It's not just an average of the whole. So we built a very sophisticated risk model to kind of manage that on the other side. And, and that's, I think, why we've gained the currency that we have with financial advisors. And you know, today it's still a big, huge opportunity. A little bit north of 90 percent of financial advisors still haven't bought a risk solution to put on their desk. Of those that have, we have like 85% market share. So we're actually in a pretty dominant position. But the opportunity I think we have is to just, and COVID has ended up being this inflection point that has led advisors to kind of say, hey, I think not having a risk solution on my desk in 2020 is a little bit like not having a computer on my desk in 2000. Like it's become something standard that I need to invest in. Yeah, it seems kind of obvious that someone in this profession would need a solution, a risk solution. A couple of points here, as you were talking about this, it sounds like the famed investor Ray Dalio at, at Bridgewater is, has his all-weather fund, which can withstand kind of any type of economic distress or any type of economic fluctuations. Does Riskalyze like backtest their models just to see if they were indeed correct about risk levels and correlations? Yeah, so I guess what I would say is that it's kind of 
to some extent, circular logic if you tried to use the word backtest, because what we're effectively using is the real historical data of the securities to drive the risk model in the first place. So rather than, say, backtesting a model, what we're actually doing is using the historical data to drive the analytics, which is telling you what kind of the 95% historical range for your model or portfolio or security would have been. So to some extent, you might say it's self-backtested. Now, we don't build models or strategies ourselves, right? Like we, we allow financial advisors to plug in whatever securities they want into a portfolio or a model or whatever. I will say that we have had some financial advisors who will say, I just don't, it's a small minority, but they'll say, a few of them will say, I just don't feel like the risk in this portfolio is how much risk Riskalyze says it, it actually is. To which we have to say, like, look, trust your feelings is only for Jedis. Like, we we, (laughs) we need to use data and math to solve this problem. So that's the beauty of what's been a quantitative approach to this is that we don't build a model with subjective inputs that you then go back and validate with backtesting. We literally are building a quantitative model that is the historical record of what these securities have done and then represents itself using bell curve analysis effectively of what the 95% historical range says about this kind of portfolio or strategy. And, and I think you have a huge market. I actually, about six years ago, did a deal where we put two companies together in this space that they sold data actually into financial advisors. I think, was is there like 300,000 out there? It's something, it's something large. Yeah. Yep, yeah, yeah. 300,000 financial advisors that exist today in the United States and probably that many more uh, around the world, at least. Yeah, I, I think it would be fantastic. I know you probably have folks at like the big wirehouse, Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley. They're not using risk as they should be using it. We have, we have firms in almost every different segment of the advisor population. And, you know, we started the business with a direct model where individual advisors sign up one at a time. We've since done a lot more enterprise-style rollouts where firms are buying Riskalyze and rolling it out across their entire network of advisors. I would say big tailwind for that has been with a newer regulation around advisors documenting that they've followed the duty of care under Reg BI, right? You know, it turns out we didn't build it for this purpose, but the core Riskalyze process that you walk a client through is effectively native documentation of the care standard under Reg BI. So, so that's driven a lot of, of enterprise growth as well. So we work with advisors both ways. Now, switching gears a little bit and yeah. talking about the company itself and how you've built it, I would love to talk a little bit about it. In, in, in your company that I, I think hasn't taken, comparison to others, a lot of capital, like a tremendous amount of capital. You've been somewhat prudent in, in that regard. What do you think has been key what do you keep in mind you know, as you're scaling or as you've been scaling the business? Yeah, absolutely. We have not taken a huge amount of capital. I think to date, we have probably deployed $20, $25 million of capital in building the business. And we've been very, very capital efficient. And I've always believed that good quality businesses can be very capital efficient. And it's not a big part of that is... We can always find new ways to invest, but being disciplined about that, I think, has accrued to our advantage. And we just have never felt like raising capital was necessarily an accomplishment in and of itself. It's what you do with that capital that is the accomplishment. And and we're really proud of what we've accomplished with the capital we've raised. Two things that I think about when you think about, like, what do you focus on and what are the factors that help you effectively grow the company? The first one is to stay very close to the product and to the customers. I still spend a lot of my time in product meetings 
thinking about the product, try to push the product forward. And, you know, our product breadth has grown a whole lot. So we have a really talented product team that drives a lot of those initiatives. But for better or for worse, they do not have a CEO who doesn't care about product and just thinks about other things. Like they know that they will get be peppered with kind of email and Slack messages from me uh, talking about a variety of different things in the product experience and, and feedback I hear from customers along the way. And we love getting customer feedback. I get it via Twitter. I get it via email. I get it on the road, uh, at least at these things we used to call conferences. And so... I think the key is how you take feedback. We don't just take feedback and implement it. We try to listen very carefully for the interests behind that feedback and then figure out a way to actually satisfy those interests in a way that actually fits the broader vision of where we think the profession needs to go and where advisors need to go, and where investors need to go. And I think that that's been the key to coming up with some of the great innovations that we've done. And I'd say the other key factor has really just been hiring the best people. And that's easy to say. It's hard to do. But the only way that I've found to do it is to is to make hard choices by figuring out what is really, really key for us to be world-class at, and then just find a way to get the best people for that function. Not saying that you don't hire high-quality people for all the rest of your functions, but figure out, it can't just be that we're going to hire the best people everywhere. Figure out where you're going to focus and what's going to make the definitive difference for the business. And then really, really focus on finding people that are just a notch above everybody else. And I, you know, there's a few spots that I've seen us do that uh, to great success. And I think it's driven a lot of our success. And then switching into the more personal side, I noticed something very unique about your background in that you have a very kind of multicultural family. And I really admire that. Um, it's something that whenever I see a truly multicultural family, I think that's someone who's kind of very generous at heart. Can you talk a little bit oh, about That's kind about of that? you say. I mean, it's kind of you say, but honestly, like our three kids are just a huge blessing to us and have made our lives so much richer. But my wife and I never diagnosed with any reason we couldn't have kids biologically. We just really felt like my youngest sister was adopted internationally. We really felt like that was kind of our plan A. And we adopted my first son, our first son, Spencer, from South Korea. He was eight months old when he came home. And then our daughter, Emma, who was born in Ethiopia. And she was also eight months old when she came home. That got us involved in some nonprofit work in Ethiopia. And then on one of our trips back, we met our oldest, Teddy, who is, uh, he's been home about five years now and he's 17. So they're 17, 14, and 12 now. And we like to say we're just your typical average Korean, Ethiopian, American family, you know? <laughs> Uh, nothing, nothing too unique about that. <laughs> and for any of those in the audience that might be thinking about or have thought, you know, about adopting internationally, what are the kind of, obviously you can imagine the upsides to it and, and kind of how you can help change lives and trajectories, but like, are there some challenging aspects to it? Yeah. I mean, look, there are, at the end of the day, I think we were all designed as human beings to be born and have a bond with our mom and dad, right? Like that's how we were wired. And you see the kinds of challenges that absent fathers, for example, create in families and single moms work their tails off to create opportunities for their kids, support their kids, love their kids. And yet kids without dads, you know, with an absent dad will have those challenges. Well, the same thing is true in an adoption situation. And, you know, they've got a, a bond that's been severed with a birth mom and there's trauma there. And that's, that's a challenge 
Kids who have been adopted have a higher incidence of special needs. There's sometimes just trauma that they have to process through and work through. We like to say it's just a part of being a Klein that you go to counseling and have a therapist and, and we work through those things and learn through those things. And that's just part of it. And so, but all in all, for all of those challenges that have existed, we just feel incredibly grateful and blessed because we have three incredible kids who are just a delight. And even with each of their individual unique challenges and, and they've, they've each got individual unique potential as well. And it's awesome to see that flourish and thrive. Yeah, it's great to see, especially someone like you is leading a company, takes the time to build a family such as yours. Now, I like to, uh, and I've taken up a lot of your time here, a couple of last questions I typically like to ask. One is, can you tell us about a time in your professional career that's been particularly challenging, and this is geared more towards the entrepreneurs in the audience, Yeah. and how you were able to kind of steer through it. And when you look back on it, you you kind of a point of, you know, somewhat pride, like we were able to get through that. Yeah, and, uh, yeah totally. I can totally give you one of those. So, I mean, I feel like a career is a series of mistakes and stumbles that you learn from, right? And one of those, we had a lot of success early on with Riskalyze and we were, we were just kind of growing in a, in a straight line uh, in a really great way. And somewhere along the way, and it really kind of came to a head in like the middle of 2018, I would say the middle of 2018 to the middle of 2020 was a very hard, difficult period for me. It started in the middle of 2018 when it became really clear that we had somehow allowed a lot of the wrong people to get into our organization. Up until end of 15, I did like a 10-minute veto interview with every single new hire. And then we were growing so fast that that didn't really scale. Well, my mistake is, is that I should have invented a, you know, something to replace that, but I just kind of let it go. And so ultimately, by the middle of 2018, I'm like, oh, we've got some of the wrong people in this organization, number one. They don't fit our culture. They don't fit our standards. Number two, we've got the wrong sales model. We really had a sales model that was a little bit more like a Salesforce sales model, which may work for Salesforce, but it doesn't really work in our, in our industry, in our profession. And so... We just had to make some really hard decisions. It was difficult because even some people that were great people, we had to change the sales model and we had to make some changes to the team. So there were some great people that left Riskalyze during that time too. And we had to make those changes to like get the sales model right to fit our industry. And so we worked through that, brought a new chief growth officer aboard, Drew DiMarino, who had just done a remarkable job. He led sales at, at eMoney Advisor, another very successful company in the space, and has just done a remarkable job for us, really rebuilt our entire growth function from both the sales side, but also the advisor success and retention side in some great ways. And the company really kind of came out of that at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. By the way, through the midst of that, my first son, Spencer, was actually going through this crazy autoimmune illness that kind of leveled him, had him out of school. So that was stressful all going on at the same time we had him in treatments for that and he went into remission in November of 2019 and all this other stuff that had been going on with the company I felt like we were kind of coming out of that and we we walked into 2020 and we were just doing gangbusters in January and February and then bam global pandemic and I just I have to say like for a moment there I almost felt sorry for myself because I'm like we just got through climbing Mount Everest. And now we're here at a global pandemic. And I feel really grateful looking at all of that because number one, I think that that experience made me a better CEO. 
It made me understand how to scale a business in a more effective way. But that caused us to navigate the pandemic in a totally different way, I think, than we might have otherwise. And we put a lot of trust in our people. And we just, you know, I just, I just sat down and I said, hey, like team, this is what we were put on earth to do. We were put on earth to bring data to the table and take fear out of our decision making. And everybody is really scared right now. And everybody's freaking out and calling their financial advisors. And it's game time for us. And we're going to stand behind our, our, the advisors that we serve. And we're going to help them stand behind their clients. And knock on wood, our growth certainly slowed a little bit at the beginning of 2020, but our retention actually climbed like crazy. And we just had, you know, we had a few customers who kind of went into economic distress. We stood behind them, helped them as best we could, made friends for life, got them through that. We got through that. By June, we were growing again really nicely. Ended the year, we did 104% of our original plan for Q4 in Q4. And so, again, I just feel really grateful. As difficult as the experience was middle of 2018 to middle of 2020, I feel like all that learning really helped us navigate this pandemic and, and get our business, our employees, the advisors we love to serve to the other side. Last question, and somewhat related to the previous one. You know, Some say that being a CEO and being the head of a company can be a lonely position uh, in that you don't always have someone to bounce all your thoughts off of. Is there someone you kind of think about, someone you admire as you're making a decision and and think, how would this person kind of frame out this problem or, or approach the situation? Yeah, I feel like I've been so blessed to have so many great mentors and just people I admire who I can talk to like that. I use a CEO coach, which has been great. I I have a few different wise people that I kind of call on like that, which has been great. One of the people I admire the most in our profession is Lori Hardwick, who served as our chairman and on our board for three years. And is just an amazing operator, really understands how a business works, especially at the human level. And is just one of the most impressive people, I think, in this profession. And she is just, she made so many contributions to our company and her time on our board. I just feel really grateful for that. But yeah, I I look at that and feel really fortunate that there are so many people that I consider mentors who have poured into me. And I, I hope I get the opportunity to do the same for others in the future. Well, Aaron, that's a good note to end on. Really appreciate you again taking the time. I mean, I know our audience will find this very insightful. Thanks. My pleasure.